our flight director sent us a message and said, you know, guys, uh, Puerto Rico is going to be the last point of land before you cross the Atlantic. And we're recommending that you land in Puerto Rico because you've, used, you've gone two thirds of the distance around the world, but you've used three quarters of your fuel. And we don't think you're going to make the coast of Africa. And that was a time when um, uh, sort of Bertrand and I, we sort of looked at each other and, and we didn't need to say anything. We instantly knew what we were going to say. And uh, we came back and we said, no, absolutely not. We're, um, we'd had a, a message from uh, Dick Rutan, who was a, a famous American pilot, who'd said, good luck, guys. Uh, just remember, the only sure way to fail is to quit. And that sort of sprang to mind then. And so we said, no, we'll be going out across the Atlantic. From adversity to success, you have control. I'm Harriet Pound, and this is the Inspirability Podcast. We kind of didn't realize at the time, and it was only when the Americans uh, mentioned it on the radio much later on, that where we were in the Pacific, uh, there was no chance of rescue if the balloon went down. We had no ships in that area. Um, it was too far south for uh, airliners to be flying over us. Um, so anyway, there was that. And then we, about two days out in the Pacific, we lost our communications, as you mentioned, with our control center. Um, and we had no idea why. It was interesting, though, we'd gone so far south that the um, con satellite, which we were using, uh, was actually over the top of us. And we were, our balloon was creating its own cone of silence. It was sort of shielding the antenna. But we didn't know that at the time. So we just lost comms and we didn't know why. Um, and then things really started to go awry uh, because we could see these storm clouds ahead of us on the horizon. And we thought um, this could be problematic. We were about 25,000 feet. We knew that storms in the Pacific during the winter rarely got above 30 to 34,000 feet. Um, so we knew that we had to climb uh, in order to avoid them. And the only way to climb in the balloon was to actually lose weight. So we threw out all sorts of things, food, clothes, I mean, batteries, everything we possibly could uh, went over the side and uh, we managed to climb up. Um, when we did climb up, it got extremely cold. Uh, the heater stopped working. And to give you, a, I, I don't know what the temperature was inside the, the capsule, but our water, which was in litre bottles, uh, all froze solid. So it was, uh, it was pretty cold, which it sort of is a little demoralizing, I have to say. And then at night, you couldn't see these clouds, of course. You know, we had no lights, we had no weather radar or anything like that. So um, we just didn't know whether we were going to fly into them or not. So the only thing we could do was to make sure that we kept the balloon as high as we possibly could. And, um, and then for some cr crazy reason, I don't know why I know why now, but we lost three of our six burners. Um, our fuel system was, was divided into two. We called it a right half and a left half, and we lost one uh, complete system. And what had happened was it was all icing up. On the, the solenoid valves were icing up on the outside. 
And I remember Bertrand looking at me and he said, you know, Brian, I have to say I'm a little afraid. <laughs> and um, I said, Bertrand, you have no idea how good that makes me feel because I'm really scared. I said a, a bit of an expletive there, but anyway, but it sort of summed it up and it, it broke the, uh, the, the tension a little bit. But we were scared, for sure. It was a, uh, a difficult time. And I think it was, um, I think it was what the English public school system might call good character building stuff. And uh, the only way through it really was to carry on as, I wouldn't say as normal, but carry on and focus on what you can affect and not to fight what you can't control. I mean, we, we couldn't control the cold, we couldn't control the, the weather, um, but what we could control was uh, looking very carefully at you know, our procedures and how it would work if we had a, an emergency and we had to vacate, you know, where was our gear and uh, was it ready for use, all that kind of stuff. Um, and also we could concentrate a little bit on the technical side. So we actually depressurized the balloon and we went outside on top to see what the problem was. And I mean, everything was just covered in this thick coating of ice and we could see these solenoids that were just frozen up. So um, we had actually some hand warmers, you know, it's like skiers have uh, on board and we wrapped cable tied these hand warmers around the solenoids and we got our burners back. And uh, so... That's remarkable ingenuity then and problem yeah, solving. Yeah, so it was, so we were quite pleased with ourselves that we were able to think clearly and not sort of sink into the veil of despair, uh, which sort of threatened to loom. And I, I think by supporting each other, by concentrating on what you could control, uh, by trying to be as professional as possible uh, in those circumstances, you kind of come through it. And when you come out the other side, um, you sort of feel a little bit taller than you were before you went in. So Brian, in terms of that situation you were in then, you're facing fear, anxiety, perhaps uncertainty. What advice would you give as a key message to any of our viewers and listeners facing situations like that of, the, of their own, how to work through them? Well, as I said, you know, don't fight what you can't control. You have to try to look at the situation coldly and um, you're going to have to deal with it one way or another. So kind of talk to yourself, get on with it, you know, pull your socks up and just just do it um, because you have no other choice uh, except to panic. And, and that's probably the very worst thing that, that could happen. Um, so think about the positives and, uh, and work towards your goal and what you're trying to achieve. Uh, and you will come through it and you will feel better about it afterwards. And you can't fight the things you can't control, but you can control how perhaps how you respond to that situation. So focus on your response and what you can control and then everything else one foot in front of the other which is what yeah. you guys did step by step absolutely and if you're part of a team also you know make sure you're feeding off your team and that that you're um building uh, on on the team relationship rather than taking away from it
because exactly because they may have spotted something that you haven't for yeah. example so if you're yeah. using your resources as efficiently and as effectively yeah. as you can then that's the the best outcome fantastic so talk to me a little bit about making decisions under pressure then because you're in a very high pressure high stress scenario how did you make decisions what do you use any particular tools or any strategies in those situations because it was um trying to fly a balloon around the world, which was never been done before. The balloons were the biggest ever built. Uh, they were only a, a one flight and, and then scrapped. So there was no experience. There was no working up to, to, to such a large balloon. I mean, there was no simulator. There was no, no chance of a practice flight. So everything that you were doing was on board was sort of for the first time the systems and, and how the balloon reacted and that kind of thing. I think, I don't know, I would say that just from, if, if I tell you how I felt, then that might sort of help somebody. But when we took off um, and it was my first stint on the balloon, uh, I felt a bit that it was flying me, you know, that I was reacting uh, to it rather than being proactive with it. And with a balloon, it's all about, feel and, and um, anticipation because when you burn for example you use your burner nothing happens for several seconds and so you have to anticipate as to when you're going to use the burner that kind of stuff so um with with this balloon all the systems were, were brand new and you were learning all the time and as i said i thought the balloon was actually flying me but by about the fifth or sixth day um i'd got it and um, certainly by the eighth day, I'd had this sort of feeling that if I wanted to, I could make it dance. And uh, it, it was um, an incredible feeling that you were on top of it and, and just, you know, okay, you, you had it now. Uh, this is, I know we're part of a, we're, we're living together, but I'm going to tell you what you're going to do and, that, and that's what you're going to do. Um, and it was... Um, it was a great feeling and it was a real confidence booster actually. And then when things started to go wrong, uh, it was, one was much more confident than, than, oh, well, should we try this? No, I'm going to try this and then see what happens sort of thing. So you equipped yourself with all the skills that, that you could yes. essentially so that you felt as prepared as you could for when things started to go wrong. Which... Yes. Well, fortunately, we had 10 days practicing before it all did start to go wrong, yeah. <laughs> so after you got the burners back then and you got comms back, what was next? We were just over a week across over the Pacific and uh, we were never really sure that we'd, we'd made it until, I suppose, we were south of Hawaii and it was... It was just extraordinary. And I, I remember I got a photograph, actually, we took a photograph of, a, of this cirrus cloud that was forming outside of the balloon. And um, it was indicative of uh, high winds. And there was a jet stream wind, just as Luke had said. And we hadn't had a jet stream, per se, uh, before that. The jet stream really is, um, it's, uh, I think, categorized as, as when the wind increases to more than 70 knots it's a jet stream but it's it's more than that actually it's like a, a huge tube of fast moving air i mean we've all seen it on the on the net charts um and if you get into it of course but 
it doesn't just go straight to where you want it to go. It kind of meanders around a bit. So you have to sort of live with it and it's going to take you that way, whether you like it or not. Um, but when we got into the jet stream, we were doing more than 70 knots. It was, it was great. Um, and so that was the time, I think, when we knew we were going to get it across the Pacific. And that was a huge relief. Um, I'd always thought that if we, nobody had flown the Pacific before, and if we could get the balloon across the Pacific, it would be success in my book. Uh, that if we, it would have, I mean, we passed the world record for distance and duration and all that kind of stuff days before. So we had created a, a magnificent flight. And if we were forced to land, um, once we'd hit the Americas, then I wouldn't have minded too much because in my book, that was success. Um, and we could have another go on Brightling Orbit 4, maybe. But um, then, you know, you kind of feel, yep, okay, and not cocky, but you feel, yeah, we're across the Pacific, that's the worst bit. And the Atlantic doesn't seem quite as bad. And then um, uh, sort of fate has a, a habit of actually saying, uh-uh, <laughs> and uh, we lost the jet stream wind that had fragmented in sort of like fingers on a hand. Um, and so we were only doing about 40 or 50 knots uh, across the Caribbean um, over Honduras. And we were kind of being forced down towards the south. And we thought, oh, crumbs. And as we were crossing the Caribbean, it started to get a little bit bumpy. There had been um, storms in the Caribbean and, and the clouds had disappeared, but there was still quite a bit of clear air turbulence over there. And that was quite uncomfortable. Um, and then... Our flight director sent us a message and said, you know, guys, uh, Puerto Rico is going to be the last point of land before you cross the Atlantic. And we're recommending that you land in Puerto Rico because you've, used, you've gone two thirds of the distance around the world, but you've used three quarters of your fuel. And we don't think you're going to make the coast of Africa. And that was a time when... Um, uh, sort of Bertrand and I, we sort of looked at each other and, and we didn't need to say anything. We instantly knew what we were going to say. And uh, we came back and we said, no, absolutely not. We're, um, we'd had a, a message from uh, Dick Rutan, who was a, a famous American pilot, who'd said, good luck, guys. Uh, just remember, the only sure way to fail is to quit. And that sort of sprang to mind then. And so we said, no, we'll be going out across the Atlantic. We wanted to fly as high as possible, and so we needed to go up to about 33,000 feet. Um, and so we asked for clearance, air, air traffic clearance, for 30,000 feet with 3,000 feet buffer above and below. And uh, the Americans uh, were not very happy with that. Um, they said, do you have any idea how many airplanes we're going to have to move out of your way? Um, because... They're doing 450 miles an hour and you're doing 50 miles an hour and you want exactly the same altitude that, that they do. Uh, they said, so I'm, I'm sorry, it's just not possible. So our flight director went back to them and said, well, guys, if they don't cross the uh, Atlantic successfully, they're going to go in and they're in your area of operations and you're going to have to rescue them. Um, and by the way, they're on TV quite a bit at the moment, so you may have to make your excuses to why the balloon stopped. Anyway, they thought about it and said, fine, okay, you're, you're clear at 30,000 feet with a 
3,000 uh, 3, foot buffer. So off we went across the Atlantic and um, it was kind of reminiscent at that point. That decision, as I say, we sort of didn't really need to discuss it. And Bertrand put it beautifully after the flight when he said that, you know, there were three of us on that balloon. There was Brian, there was me, and there was both of us. And it was both of us that made all the decisions. Um, and uh, that's, uh, you know, to me, that was, it just summed it up beautifully. So we got out across the Atlantic and uh, we were pushing the balloon as high as we possibly could. Uh, and slowly we actually got in towards the jet stream. Um, and I remember uh, that I was doing calculations. Uh, Bertrand was asleep. I'm doing some calculations, fuel calculations about how far we'll get before we come down. And I'm glancing at the GPS and over the period, probably 15, 20 minutes, the speed increased from below 60 knots to 110. And uh, I, I just could hardly believe it. And um, clearly we were getting into the core of the jet. Um, and I remember just sort of pushing this paper away from me and looking out of the window and thinking, I have no idea who's flying this balloon, but please carry on. You're doing a great job. Um, and it was uh, pretty inevitable then that we would actually cross the coast of Africa and the finish line. And make history. Indeed. So there were some other challenges on the adventure as well. Um, I believe there was one where you had poisonous fumes in the, uh, in the gondola. So tell me a little bit more about that and how you manage the stress of that scenario to work through it and then have a successful solution at the end of it. Yes, I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> it was as we, um, we were crossing the Pacific and as we were getting across the coast of Mexico, that in that kind of elation of, yeah, you know, we've, we've, we've done the, the biggest part of the journey and the flight's been a success from, from my angle anyway. It was odd that uh, I, I was sleeping and um, I woke up and I was a little out of breath um, and I wasn't quite sure why. Um, and I sort of, we had a, a bunk and there was a curtain across the bunk. And you could sort of, so I opened the curtain and looked out and Bertrand was um, slumped on the desk, on the pilot's uh, desk at the front. Um, he wasn't unconscious, but he really didn't look very well. And I, I had no idea what was going on. So I got out of bed and I thought, well, something's not right. I was a little better off than Bertrand, I have to say, because within the bunk, we actually had a um, a little hole in the oxygen pipe, which was feeding oxygen to the flight deck, and it would blow ox fresh oxygen in, into the bunk. So the, the bunk had a little more oxygen than perhaps the uh, front of the capsule. So I got out of bed and I thought, well, I don't know what's going on, but I'd better get on oxygen. So, um, and, and that was instinctive and, and of course with the training. So the first thing you do is to make sure you can breathe. Um, I mean, I couldn't smell any fumes or anything, so I put the oxygen mask on. Got Bertrand, put an oxygen mask on him. So we weren't able to discuss the, the issue. Uh, well, hey, we had oxygen masks on, but anyway, because um, Bertrand was, um, was really not with it, and so I, I suggested he went into the bunk and tried to sleep while I 
tried to sort out what was what. And um, I wasn't sure what was going wrong, but clearly something was. Um, the team on the ground, I'd, I'd reported the, the issue and they were, you know, consulting medicals, medical profession. Um, and I decided, well, the only thing that I can do really on board is to change everything connected with the, uh, with the oxygen system. So I'd changed filters and uh, checked all, all various things and, uh, and instruments and that sort of thing. We never really knew what the issue was, except that it, it righted itself after I changed the filters. And it was only after the flight that the best guess was that um, basically how, how, we, how we lived on board was that uh, within the atmosphere, we simply closed the hatch at low, low level and trapped the pressure inside. So we didn't have compressors or any pressurization system uh, per se. Um, but we did have a tank of liquid nitrogen, a tank of liquid oxygen, so we could replenish um, the air inside the balloon if, if we needed to, if we had to uh, depressurize at any point. And we could do that, um, I think, two, possibly three times, but certainly twice. Um, and we'd already done it, of course, at high altitude when we went out to uh, sort out the problems with the solenoids. So. Uh, I changed the filters and, and basically what we did was that um, we had a, a lithium hydroxide filter which would filter out the carbon dioxide in the air and then a carbon filter which would deal with any smells and then it, the air would be sucked through here with fans, oxygen added to it and then would be circulated around the capsule. And we think that the lithium hydroxide filter had uh, a layer, a very thin layer of ice on top of it and it simply stopped working. So it was actually a buildup of carbon dioxide that we were suffering in the capsule. And um, once we changed the filter, things slowly got back to normal and we were okay. But it did cause uh, a lot of concern uh, at the time. And um, there were all sorts of guesses on the ground that it may be pulmonary edema and, or fumes coming out of the uh, styrene uh, uh, within the capsule itself so anyway so talk to me about managing that stressful scenario then in terms of working through it methodically and whether there are any key messages that you think maybe your viewers or listeners could take away from that scenario and apply to their own lives i think from um from a pilot's perspective uh it's really important to recognize hypoxia uh, early um and we all know it as, as, as pilots, but of course the the first symptom of hypoxia is uh, the fact that you become a little elated and euphoric, if you like. So it's a bit like being drunk. You know, it's not a not a bad feeling actually. This wasn't quite the same because we we had a buildup of carbon dioxide, uh, which was causing the uh, the issue. Um, so. Once I was on oxygen, and that was the first thing, and as I said, it was kind of intuitive, that's the first thing you reach for is to, to get an oxygen mask on. Then you start to feel a little better and you're clear, more clear-headed. And then, of course, you have your compass mentors enough to actually think about the system and, and go through it. I mean, I was lucky that, in a sense, that I was a project manager um, before I was the... Um, 
asked to to be the pilot because I knew, I think, pretty much every nut and bolt in, in that thing. I knew the systems inside out. And so it was probably easier for me than it was for Bertrand uh, because I'd lived with the system since their design. And uh, so it was relatively straightforward to know what to do in, and in which order to do it. Um, and sorry, just do it step I, by step. And Exactly, yes. Yeah, in a logical sequence, you, you have to think about it, um, think about the problem, break it down into its constituent parts, and then deal with it in a logical and sensible way, bit by bit. And you can't control what the problem you're faced with, but you no. can control exactly how you're responding and remaining calm and methodical throughout, throughout resolving it. for listening. Remember to tune in to the next episode of Inspirability. Subscribe to our channel to find all of our previous episodes and new releases.